come to an encounter with the divine, with the almighty, with the eternal one, there's no going back. There's no turning back to just the other kind of piddly way of living your life where you're just trying to make it through. And that's what Deuteronomy wants to see happen in the life of Israel. It wants to see their life be ordered rightly. Remember how it starts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And everything else flows from that. Some carpet and uh, <laughs> Josh and, and some others were able to put some things up in the back that as we so we're this is all in process just so you know um, we are we're sort of in the process of, of getting a clearer sense of what uh, the platform will look like up here um, so we uh, appreciate, first off, everybody who came out and helped yesterday um, was, it was a good, it was a good time. I had a good time. Um, but we also just appreciate our, you know, any, any patience with us as we start to put, um, sort of update some of these things. So we're in Deuteronomy 31 this morning. Um, and... We are actually going to go ahead and read the whole chapter. So let me, let's, we got about 23 verses here. Um, are there 30 verses altogether? Well, we're just, yeah, we're going to, we're going to read all 30 then. <laughs> I needed a couple extra hours of study this week, I guess. So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I'm 120 years old today. I'm no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in your hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God." And be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear them and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua, present yourselves in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting, and the Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud. And the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured." And many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done because they have turned to other gods. Now, therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, They will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. And the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous. For you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. (coughs) When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, Take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. Then in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for... For your servant Moses, for your people Israel, um, for the guidance and the direction that you give to us through their history and through their story. Thank you, Lord God, that we have been grafted into their life, that this story, which was once only their story, is now also our story. We thank you, Lord, above all for your son, Jesus Christ, who makes even what sounds like bad news out to be good news through his death and resurrection. May we hear and look forward to that transformation again this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're here in these kind of final moments of Deuteronomy. Um, There's four chapters left, chapter 31, which we just read, all 30 verses of it, Um, and chapter 32, in which uh, Moses actually writes out and delivers the song that they mentioned here in 31. Um, And it's a song that's not a particularly... Nice or pretty song. Uh, It's actually a song about the judgment of God on the people of Israel and what's going to take place when they kind of inevitably do rebel and and abandon and forsake the law that Moses has just spent all these chapters giving them. And then chapter 33, Moses goes in and blesses all the people of Israel tribe by tribe. Um, And there's some interesting ones in there. If you (laughs) feel like reading, I would encourage you to do that. 
And then 34 is this kind of final wrap-up sort of epilogue um, in which Moses goes up Mount Pisgah, looks out over the promised land, and dies. And God buries him. Um, he, is, he just dies there on the side of the mountain, and that's sort of the end of it for him. Um, but this chapter, which is going to be our final sermon in Deuteronomy, um, is these final speeches to the parties who are involved. And it also contains this kind of passing of the torch on from the leadership of Israel goes from Moses to Joshua. Moses had brought them up out of Egypt and through the wilderness um, and up to the very banks of the Jordan, to the plains of Moab, ready to go over into that promised land. And now the leadership passes on to somebody else for this new chapter. Moses speaks initially to Israel and then to Joshua, and then he speaks to the priests and the Levites. So you have one, two, three parties there. But then God sort of has his turn, and God speaks directly to Moses with Joshua there listening. And Moses tells both Israel and Joshua, I don't know if you picked up on that, he, he tells both of them, be strong and courageous. Right? It's not only Joshua who gets those words, but it's all the people of Israel. To be strong and courageous as they go over and take the land that God has prepared for them. The priests and Levites then get some specific instructions about what to do with the actual law that Moses has just written down and handed over to them. And then Moses receives instruction from the Lord. It's this remarkable scene. It says that God actually comes in at the very sort of place of presence, right? And the Holy of Holies, God shows up in a cloud and is there before Moses and Joshua speaking to him. And Moses is told that he's going to die. He's told that he's going to die. And then the Lord tells Joshua to be strong and courageous again. I mean, to kind of get a sense of what goes on in this chapter, Moses is either told that he's going to die or he references his own death five different times. And then three different times, Joshua and Israel are told to be strong and courageous. We know this is the end of Moses' life because he keeps telling us throughout the chapter. He's lived 120 years, old, 120 years, and the rough breakdown of his life is that he spent about 40 years in Pharaoh's palace as a prince of Egypt. He spent about 40 years wandering through the Sinai wilderness as a shepherd in the tents with the family of Jethro. Um, that's the time when he actually goes up Mount Sinai for the first time, as far as we know, and encounters God at the burning bush. And then he spends 40 years leading the people of Israel up out of Egypt, across the desert, and here to the plains of Moab. Moses has spent his entire life in three different sections taking care of other people's stuff. Right? He spends his first 40 years guiding and directing as a kind of politician, political figure in Egypt, guiding and directing his adoptive father's country. He spends his second 40 years guiding and directing the sheep of his father-in-law, Jethro. And he spends the last 40 guiding and directing the people of God. And yet Moses, who always was working for somebody else, has been prepared for this task like nobody else. Only Elijah matches 
up to Moses in terms of holiness and importance for the people of God in the Old Testament. Only Jesus surpasses him in his importance in the life of God's people. And yet Moses never sees the fruit of this tree that he planted and tended, that he spent all of his time pouring into. His last act is to send off his people with the word that they're going to fail at the thing that he spent his entire life getting them to do. Imagine that. Well, there's this old phrase. You may have heard it. Um, it's the phrase memento mori. It's, a, it's an old phrase that means remember that you will die. Christians have used it. Um, others have used it as well. And it means that as you live your life, you ought to do so with a deep sense that one day it will come to an end. The Egyptians, <coughs> when they would throw their big feasts and parties at these long tables with just piled high with all the riches and goods of the world, down at one end would set up a skeleton dressed up in fine clothes that would just sit silently in this chair. So that everybody's, as everybody is kind of drinking and, and getting drunk and eating and, and just carousing themselves into a stupor, there was this reminder of what you will become. That with all your finery and all of your wealth and riches, you still, at the end of the day, become a skeleton. In Europe, if you look at art from Europe, oftentimes there are these paintings, and for us, it's kind of like, wait, what's going on here? But you'll get like a real attractive young man or woman, right? They seem to be kind of in the height of their power and their ability. They're on the rise. There's probably symbols of different things around them. Maybe they've got a throne or a, a crown or something that's just showing that they're a powerful person in this world, but then in their hand or on the table next to them, there's this skull as a reminder that even at the height of your power, even at the best of who you are, you ought to remember that you will die. That you, there will be a, a last chapter for you, right? That this will come to an end. And I wonder, I mean, it feels like these are kind of morbid it's a morbid way of looking at the world. If I wake up every day going, yes, another day, and one day I won't wake up. <laughs> and we can think like, I mean, I guess so. It feels a little morbid to us. But honestly, on the other hand, forgetting that you will die, that's actually more morbid to me. <laughs> to just ignore the fact of what we all know is coming to ignore the thing that we know is true, which is that we are not God, that only God is eternal, and that our life is not our own, but that we live our lives in the service of the one who does, in fact, hold all lives in his hand. You know, study after study shows that one out of one people die in this world. And that so far, nobody has gotten out of this life alive, right? It happens. And so the interesting thing to me is when we attempt to forget or ignore our death. Moses certainly did not. And yet I think that's actually, at least in our culture, that's one of the first lies 
what the enemy will tell us. Because our medical system is pretty good. And it can keep us going for quite a long time. And our makeup is pretty good. And sometimes that can keep us looking like we're not dying for quite a long time. And depending on how you've invested, you can get a new sports car every couple years, and that might help you feel, as you're out on the road, like you're not dying. <laughs> but you are alive again. Hop on that motorcycle and just, right, Josh? Josh, Josh rode in on his motorcycle this morning. Right? <laughs> we can do these things to kind of patch over the feeling of our finality. Moses doesn't do that. Moses had so many opportunities to do things differently in his life. Right? He could have, coming down from the mountain with those laws in his hands, he could have scratched himself into those tablets, you know, the 11th commandment or whatever it is, and, and Moses and his son shall be king of Israel forever and ever and ever and ever. But he didn't. He could have right here, Moses had sons. He could have, instead of passing the torch on to Joshua as God commanded him, he could have passed the torch on to his own kids, started a dynasty. That's what people normally do. And yet he doesn't do that either. Moses probably could have gone back to the palaces of Egypt, partied at one of those tables with the skeleton down at the end and done just fine. He probably could have run back to his father-in-law Jethro's tents, had a nice life out in the wilderness of Sinai. But instead, he decides to do what God asks him to do. He lives his life focused toward the eternal, focused toward the things that will last, which is not himself. And I think it's because Moses had encountered God himself. He was at the burning bush when the Lord revealed himself to him. He was a conduit for the Lord's encounter with Pharaoh in the ten plagues. He spoke with the Lord on the mountain, and even here, he spoke with him at the tent of meeting. There, there are times when it talks about Moses going up on the mountain for 40 days at a time in fasting and prayer, or going to the very kind of heart of the, of the tabernacle, to the Holy of Holies, praying and laying prostrate before the Lord in this intimate conversation that Scripture says, the Lord spoke with Moses face to face. I mean, who else other than Jesus and maybe Paul in the Scriptures can really say that? That there was this actual face-to-face -face encounter with the Lord. That he saw and encountered God. And when that happens to you, it reorients and it restructures everything about who you are. When you, when you come to an encounter with the divine, with the almighty, with the eternal one, there's no going back. There's no turning back to just the other kind of piddly way of living your life where you're just trying to make it through. And that's what Deuteronomy wants to see happen in the life of Israel. It wants to see their life be ordered rightly. Remember how it starts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And everything else flows from that. Right? You love lo the Lord with everything that you are, everything that you could be. From there, you therefore love your neighbor as yourself. And what is that? What do those two things look like? Oh, they look like the Ten Commandments. Right? 
That's what love actually looks like is those Ten Commandments. And if you want to get more specific, we've got about you know, 14, 15 chapters of details on how to do that in Israel's world. That's what chapters 12 to 26 are in Deuteronomy. It's all this walking out of how do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and how do you love your neighbor as yourself? The specifics that we get caught up on and we kind of twist our head and knots around are really just an explanation of that. But in the promised land, we live a life that puts all things in their proper order. Worship and work and family, community, justice, righteousness, wisdom, peace, all of those things flow down appropriately from that central thing, which is to love God. And Moses is able to do this. Hey, everybody, this is Pastor Jeff jumping in here in the middle. Um, my mic ran out of batteries right here in the middle of the sermon. Unfortunately, uh, I had some in my pocket, and so we were able to swap those out and um, get going again right away. So here we are jumping back into uh, the sermon on Deuteronomy 31. Oh, yeah, yeah. Remember that you will die, Energizer Bunny. <laughs> All right. But Israel gets their, they get their priorities mixed up, right? They're focused on the wrong thing. So we do the same thing. We put our children's success in the wrong place, which is really just a way of trying to extend our own success most of the time. We let them, we let them choose the sport they want to play. We let them choose their instrument. We let them choose everything, but we, and but we, wait a second, what is it? No, we force them to play sports. We force them to play instruments. There it is. But we let them choose their religion, right? <laughs> we do it when we place entertainment over worship. Or when we value the sort of fleeting things of this world over the eternal things of God. We do it when we allow God to exist as one element of our life, but not as the determining element. God is a star in the constellation, which is me. Part of this is because we avoid death so much. We are so good at convincing ourselves that we'll never die. We're so good at avoiding looking like that's going to happen to us one day. But I'm convinced that Christians really should be different. That we should not avoid, but rather we should boldly face death. I love going to Christian funerals. <laughs> I love going to, Christian, to funerals for people who have loved God, who have given themselves, you know, I'm not hustling to get there for you or for me or anybody, but when you're in that moment, there's this confidence that our life is not our own, but rather that God is the one who holds our life and that we worship a God, not who just kind of sees death happen and shrugs his shoulders, but God who has actually defeated death. That we worship the God who uses resurrection to accomplish his purposes. And so we don't kind of just have to sit around and allow death to hang over us, but instead, these are Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, 
the first fruits of those who are fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And later on in, in verse 51 to 58, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this, immortal bo this mortal body must puts on, <laughs> excuse me, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? <coughs> the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why can he say be steadfast, be immovable? Because there is no threat which can overcome that in which we have put our hope. Why can he say, be strong, be courageous? Because there is nothing that can conquer the Lord. And so we can labor knowing that our labor is not in vain because even death cannot destroy good labor. Even death cannot take away those good things which we do in service of God. Nothing can erase that. Nothing can deny that. Nothing can strip that from us. So when we say memento mori, remember that you will die. What we mean is that, yes, I will die and you will die, provided the Lord does not come back. But that means that our lives are properly ordered. We put worship and service to God first, and everything flows out of that. Our families, our work, our communities, our love for our friends and our city and our nation, it's all in the right order. And we know that death is serious, but it's also mysterious. <laughs> There's a great line from C.S. Lewis in the book, The Last Battle, um, which is a book about death. It's a children's book about death, believe it or not. Uh, <laughs> it's about the end of the world of Narnia. Since the whole world of Narnia comes to an end, and Aslan, who is Christ for this land of Narnia, ends up saying, all of this life that we have known and experienced is just the title and the cover page of the story. The rest of the story is yet to be written and yet to be lived. We're not even in chapter 1. We're not even in chapter one yet. But the story that we are living is God's story. 
And it's the story that keeps on going, not just in terms of kind of eternity that we live forever and ever and ever, but in terms of the depth of our experience that it goes deep, 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 and high, 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 high. And we live in this kind of fullness of life, and that is what God wants to unfold in and through us. And we then present that to the world, but we can only give this small glimpse now. So we remember that we will die because in remembering that, we are encouraged to remember that we will live. We will live true life. And so this is where Moses and God's command of Joshua comes into play. Remember, he says, be strong and courageous. And yeah, on the surface, he says, be strong and courageous because you're going to go fight these kings who you know are tall and mean and ugly. And you don't really want to fight them. And they got big, high, strong walls. And how are you going to even fight those battles? You're just a bunch of people been running around in the desert for 40 years. So be strong and courageous. Well, courage, courage is the ability to, to do what is right in the face of danger and difficulty and death and fear and grief. But you see, if you're going to be courageous, you've got to be able to see through the thing that's in front of you, right? Courage is not about just throwing yourself into harm's way for its own sake. Walking out into the middle of Bradshaw Road is not courage. Okay? It's stupidity, right? He doesn't say be stupid and strong. He says be strong and courageous. When you are courageous, because you can see through the challenge that's in front of you to the good and the blessing and the hope that's on the other side of it. And so you're able to walk into pain, fear, grief, and danger because you know that there's a, ba- a greater truth. Courage is, uh, in a lot of ways, it's the foundation for all growth. It's the foundation for all spiritual growth. It's the foundation for all personal growth. It's the foundational, a lot of people say, for all the virtues. So that if you want to grow in wisdom, you have to first be courageous. If you want to grow in patience, you actually have to be courageous. If you want to grow in justice or righteousness, you actually have to have some courage first. This is a quick example. You know, we believe in honesty, right? We try to teach our kids to be honest. We try to teach, we try to be honest ourselves. It's hard sometimes, but we try. And so why do our kids, generation after generation, continue to lie? Why do they continue to lie about who stole the cookies, about who broke the lamp, about who cut up their sister's Barbie dolls and sprinkled the pieces in her bed. I don't know who did that. (laughs) It was me. Uh, (laughs) And yet we continue to lie about who actually went and did that terrible thing. And why do we do it? Kids lie. I don't know if you remember this from when you were a kid. Kids lie because they're afraid. Kids lie to get out of trouble, but I think oftentimes kids lie because they're worried about worse than just, I'm going to be ground or I'm going to have my phone taken away or whatever it is. They lie because they're afraid 
because their parents are not going to love them so much anymore. They lie because they're afraid of punishment, maybe. They lie because they're afraid of being labeled bad. And of course the lie is not right, and of course the lie makes it worse. But imagine you're five, six, seven, eight years old again. And you can't see through the trouble that you're in to the moment of reconciliation on the other side. Right? You can't see through the anger of your parent to the thing that is over here. Where they're saying, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And some of us are still five and six and seven years old inside. And so we struggle to be courageous in the midst of that difficulty because we struggle to see through to the other, through that danger to the other side. We struggle to imagine a world where we're not shut out or ignored, where we haven't lost everything that matters to us. You see, honesty requires courage. And so we have to be strong and courageous before we can be faithful or hopeful or loving, or temperate, or wise, or just. It's the basis for every virtue. And that's why this is what the Israelites need. That's why they need strength and courage as they go into the promised land. They need courage for this war they're about to fight because they won't, fight, they won't win it simply by being the best fighters. They're not going to win it by being Navy SEALs. They're going to win it by their faith. That's what God wants to train them in. He's not looking for the top-notch military unit in the world. He's looking for a people who are faithful and submissive and loving. He's training them to become a nation of saints and a kingdom of priests who will show the world real love for God and for neighbor. God is trying to demonstrate in Israel what it's like when our desires and our loves are rightly ordered. And he's doing the same for us. We're not called to be courageous to walk out into the streets with weapons and military formation. We're not called to drive out the heathens from Sacramento and Rancho Cordova. We're not that called to flush out the unbelievers. We're called to boldly call people to belief through love and mercy and the unexpected compassion of a just God that's on display in the Torah. In us, believe it or not, in Cordova Church of the Nazarene at 3520 Bradshaw, people see a small glimpse of the goodness of God. But we have to be bold enough to drive out sin and death, to drive out what has taken hold of us, because the battle that God really wants to fight in us and in this world is the fight of faith. So what does God have Moses do? Remember? He has him write a song. Chapter 32 is Moses' song that he puts into the mouth of Israel and that Moses teaches all of Israel that they continue to sing generation after generation after generation so that when God's judgment does finally fall on them, they can't say, where did this come from? This is coming out of nowhere. 
No, Moses has already taught and led and pastored and shepherded them into this moment. But God's called us to sing a better song. God has called us to live our lives in a way that really matters. To live our lives with the strength and the courage that faces reality as it is and sees through that reality to the hope which God is calling us to. He's calling us through all of the pleasure-seeking and the comfort-mongering of our world to know that death is not the last word, but that instead the final word is Jesus Christ, who's conquered sin, who has conquered death, who's conquered it not only theoretically out in the world, but he has conquered it in you if you will be submissive to it. And we're free to live a good life. We're free to live the life that God has prepared us for. We're free to live a life of blessing and of hope, a life of grace and of peace. We're free to live a life that is determined by the resurrection and not by our own death. Be strong and courageous, friends. The Lord goes before us and behind us. Let us trust in Him. Lord God, thank you for bringing us into this place. Thank you, above all, for the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ. May we put ourselves in your hands this morning, we pray in Jesus' name.